Linux for Everyone episode number 50 is here, and it's made possible thanks to a long-term partnership with Tuxedo Computers. And this time around, we're going to celebrate not just 50 episodes of the podcast, but also 50,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, This is the second AMA that I've done. The first one is way back in episode 17. So if you missed that one, go catch up and then come right back here and resume. But anyway, I'm answering a bunch of your questions about Linux, about coffee, about gaming, about European and Croatian culture, all kinds of great stuff. So let's not waste any more time. Episode 50 starts right now. Hello, this is Daniel from Ohio in the USA. You're listening to Linux for Everyone. Welcome home. All right, let's kick things off with a question from Richard. Richard asks, uh, I was hoping to hear your advice and product or software recommendations for someone interested in starting up a new podcast or video channel. He says, I'm planning on starting a YouTube channel called Dev-ish, which is an awesome name, Dev-ish, which is for anyone working in a role that only sometimes involves code. I want to get started with the minimal investment necessary But on the other side, I want to provide quality content to my audience. Huge fan of the show. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Richard. All right, here's my answer. Whether whether we're talking about video production or audio production, find yourself a used Blue Snowball or Yeti microphone. Blue makes both the Snowball and the Yeti. The Snowball is kind of your entry-level podcasting microphone. You can get a brand new uh, Blue Snowball for under 100 bucks easily. I ran Insomnia Radio for like seven years using just the Blue Snowball, and it was great. Uh, I've even recorded a few Linux for Everyone episodes with my newer Blue Yeti microphone. And, you know, it's great because it's plug and play. It works on any operating system. It's super portable. It has great sound quality. The, the only drawback that both of these microphones have is that they are omnidirectional. So you will get a lot more uh, room noise or ambient noise. The other component that's been a staple for me since 2004 is Audacity. Audacity is awesome because it works, again, on Mac, Linux, or Windows. It is... It's just, it's just rock solid. It just works. And it has everything that you need to produce uh, quality audio, quality spoken audio. If you want to tackle that room noise that you might get with uh, a microphone like the Blue Snowball, you can use Audacity's, I'm going to look at it right now. In fact, it is called uh, just noise reduction. It's under the effect menu. And and a great technique for eliminating that noise in Audacity is just um, sample, just record the room silently for like 10, 15 seconds before you start recording your voice. Now, once you are completely finished with that audio project and you want to start editing or start, you know, mixing it down to the final product, what you do is you highlight that 10 to 15 seconds of silence, and then you click the effect tab, click noise reduction, and then choose get noise profile. And what that's going to tell Audacity is, okay, this user wants to remove this noise profile from the entire recording. 
And so then you just click the, tr- you do that, and then you click the entire track, and then go back to the noise reduction feature and click OK and just apply that to the whole track. And it works wonders. Another option is a uh, web utility called Auphonic, which is, I think you get 90 minutes or two hours of, um, of audio production time for free as a, as a free user. But if you pay, I think it's $9.99 a month, you get, uh, I think, eight or nine hours. And it is absolutely genius because uh, what it does is it levels out your audio. So not only does it remove all the noise and hum, it makes all of your audio volume very consistent. And I have used it for the past year for both uh, the podcast and the YouTube channel. So that's kind of the audio side of things. Now let's let's journey over to the video side. Uh, video hardware, that's going to be probably expensive unless you want to use an amazing solution called DroidCam OBS. DroidCam OBS basically uses uh, what is probably the best camera you already have in your smartphone, well, your, your Android, and will beam that image over your network to OBS, and you can use that as a webcam. So you can use it for both uh, recordings and streaming. And in my experience, if you have a halfway decent Wi-Fi network, it, it offers, it will give you almost no latency. So if you've got an Android, you have yourself a great camera for recording yourself on video or for recording products uh, or, you know, whatever you want to record. And I would highly recommend just give the developer seven bucks. You unlock it for life. Uh, on your Google account. So you don't have to pay per device, you just pay per account, and then you can use it across multiple devices. So that and OBS is a fantastic combination. It does work on Linux. And I'm not sure what your PC situation is, but even a Raspberry Pi 400 can handle 1080p video editing. It's it's a little painful, but you can do it if you're very, very patient. Uh, my advice would be grab yourself a Pinebook Pro, for 200 bucks, grab yourself a used ThinkPad on eBay for probably under 400 bucks. As long as you've got eight gigabytes of RAM and a quad core CPU, you'll have an adequate experience with video editing. And on the software side, um, if you're looking for something really simple, not, not necessarily bare bones, but intuitive, right? Give Shotcut a try. That's, uh, it's called Shotcut. And it most resembles Apple's iMovie. And Again, it's kind of platform agnostic. You can use it across Linux, Mac OS, and Windows. Now, I was kind of sour on Caden Live for a while. Um, in fact, I was so sour on it that I had paid to use Lightworks. And I was also kind of dabbling with using Apple's Final Cut Pro on my Mac. But with the 20.04 release, Caden Live kind of took things to the next level. And it is a uh, much more stable much more uh, visually attractive and just much more usable, robust piece of video editing software. So highly, highly recommended, especially if you're going to be editing on Linux. Definitely give Caden Live a shot. All right, a quick departure from Linux with the next pair of questions submitted by JT. Thank you, JT. Question number one. What location in Croatia would you recommend somebody visit once international travel becomes a thing again? preferably suitable for someone who wants to photograph landscapes and traditional architecture while avoiding tourist hotspots. So I have to preface this answer by saying 
If you want to avoid tourist hotspots, the easiest way to do that is just come in the off season. So think uh, maybe April, May, early June, or um, September, October. The weather is is still very, very mild, and you'll have a fraction of the tourists uh, in the whole country. So there is a region in northwest Croatia called Istria, and it is this achingly gorgeous area that time forgot. And I, I say time forgot in a, in a very good way. If you want to understand exactly what I mean, visit HUM. It's spelled H-U-M, so you might pronounce it HUM. Uh, it is HUM, Croatia. It is the smallest town in the world. It's got about 30 residents there, and it has been around since at least the 11th century, right? So you've got these cobbled walkways in this castle, and uh, it basically a medieval town that is still very much alive and kicking. And the surrounding countryside is just so serene and so gorgeous. Even the drive there is, uh, you're going to have to stop multiple times to just take in the scenery so that you don't have an accident, you know, uh, rubbernecking everywhere. Now, those of you who followed me for a while, uh, you know that there is this magical little place, this home away from home, uh, this little slice of heaven that we have called Preventura. And uh, that's where we try to spend as much of our summers as possible. It is also in the uh, Istrian region of Croatia. And not only is it just this quaint, uh, just an awesome little village, uh, and it, you know, it's it's got this charm about it. Now, now the city, I guess the village itself, it's near Pula. So you travel about 15 minutes from there, go to Pula, and you can see uh, one of the ancient Roman Colosseums, uh, Pula Arena. And in fact, that is where we saw the Foo Fighters play twice in the summer of 2019, uh, before, you know, before things happened in the world. What's so incredible to me, though, is pretty much anywhere you stay in Preventura, uh, you can just leave your apartment or leave your house and walk down a street or two and go through a forest and you will be at the beach. And there's this huge stretch of, uh, of shoreline that is called uh, Camp Stupica. And that's just a wonderful place to stay. And then if you keep going uh, just a couple miles from the village, there's a place called Kemenyak National Park. And this is a peninsula. And it's, uh, it's like six, six uh, kilometers of these winding dirt roads and lush forests and gorgeous Adriatic Sea beaches. Every, it's, it's just, I can't even, how do I explain this? with just my voice, you know, it's really impossible, but, uh, you can find a lot of serenity there. You can find, uh, like I said, if you go in the off season, even if you go in early June, uh, you'll find a lot of just beautiful, quiet spots where you can just kind of soak in the sun and swim in this, you know, clear see-through turquoise water. Ah, (laughs) just thinking about it makes me so happy. And then inside of Kamenyak National Park, there are all kinds of beach bars, and uh, one of the best, in fact, the absolute best bar I've ever been to is Safari Bar. 
This place was built by hand starting a few decades ago by a single guy who the locals call Vlado. And he built the bar itself. He built all the bamboo huts and the tables where you can sit. Uh, and he made these of like made these from slabs of, of rock and treated wood. He made slides for kids and swings and uh, a dog bar and a lookout tower and all of these these monuments and landmarks. And it's just absolutely blissful. You could spend an entire week just exploring uh, Kemenyak itself, not to mention the surrounding areas and, and the, the larger Istrian region. So that's definitely my recommendation. Uh, check out Istria. Come to Croatia when you can and uh, enjoy the food, enjoy the culture, and enjoy the sea. JT's second question is... Uh, exponentially more difficult to answer. JT asked what I would describe as being the best fiction book I've ever read. Oh, that is so tough. I'd have to say the answer is Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. So this this book is an experience. Uh, it's classified as evolutionary sci-fi. So you wouldn't think that a novel that spans literally thousands of years could be this suspenseful page-turner, but that's exactly what it is. The world-building and the character development is off the charts. It's the most imagination I've ever seen on a page. And uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to give away too much of the story, but it's what I recommend for people who love um, hard sci-fi, people who love sci-fi in general, and people who might be hearing about Adrian Tchaikovsky and, and, and kind of where to start. If you want to get into Tchaikovsky, start with Children of Time and the sequel Children of Ruin. I am hesitant to give away too much of the plot, but I will, I will tease you with this. What would happen if Earth was essentially uh, on a path to extinction, most of humanity was gone, and a few ships escaped into the stars looking for a new place to call home. And they brought with them this uh, nanovirus and a literal barrel of monkeys, okay? So there's this, it's this generational ship, and they have grand plans, but the plans are destroyed. Let's just say that the nanovirus, which was intended to kind of speed up the monkey's evolution, uh, it... It, it found another target on the planet, and things escalate very, very quickly. And uh, if, you're, if you're scared of spiders, I would, I would approach this novel with caution. But otherwise, it's absolutely fantastic, and it's, uh, it's one of my favorite books of all time. So I've read that. I've read Children of Ruin, and I'm currently on book two of the uh, Shadows of the Apt series by Adrian Tchaikovsky, which is a 10-book series. <laughs> so I'm invested in this guy's imagination. Uh, so the, yeah, there you go. Children of Ruin, or Children of Time and Children of Ruin. Check them both out in that order. Hey, Jason. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Always wanted to say that. Do you think that the average new Linux user, assuming they stick with Linux, will eventually find that they enjoy using the terminal? Oh, I love this question, because if you had asked me three years ago, I would probably have a completely different answer. 
Um, if they're anything like me, they just might end up enjoying using the terminal. It took me a couple years, but the almighty terminal finally got its hooks in me, and it, it really took me by surprise. Here's a short excerpt from a video that I produced talking about this very thing. Why do Linux users seem to love the command line so much? When I started my own Linux journey, I was adamant about not even touching a terminal window, as if the command line was this diseased, disgusting thing. If I can't do it with the GUI, then I'm not even interested in this distro, I'd say stubbornly. I would get visibly upset when stumbling across all these tutorials online that use command line instructions when far easier, at least in my eyes, graphical approaches exist. Why on earth were these guys showing us how to make an application executable using the command line? Why not just find it in your file manager, right-click it, select properties, go to the permissions tab, and check the appropriate box to make it executable? That seemed more intuitive to me. Or maybe it was just what felt correct after two decades of Windows. Making a bootable USB stick with the command line, though, launching a terminal window to install a driver or encode a video with FFmpeg? Are you insane? That was nearly three years ago, and my stance has gradually shifted under the weight of experience. The easy answer is that it feels empowering to use the terminal. There's this intoxicating, geek-driven, power-user fantasy satisfaction to making our computer respond instantly to our commands. The keyboard, mightier than the mouse, weaponized to do our bidding, transforming words into binary and binary into action. But it goes deeper than that. I think it goes much deeper. I've come to realize the true appeal of the command line is consistency. It's uniformity. It's reliability. There is a certain level of comfort in that. Okay, back to the AMA version of Jason now. And uh, yeah, so that should bring you up to speed with my surprising shift of opinion about the terminal. And thank you, David Dean, for that amazing intro and, uh, and for taking the time to submit your question in the form of audio. That was awesome. But David's got a follow-up question. Knowing what you do now about the benefits of using a terminal, would you eventually teach people you know who are considering switching to Linux how to interact with programs through that program's command line interface? I really think that I would. Um, I wouldn't pressure them, but I would show them the door, you know, and, and I would explain that, look, there's another world behind here that you might love exploring. And I would explain that there are more options than just the GUI and explain the benefits of, you know, using a command line and, and basically outlining everything that I just said in that little video excerpt. Uh, it, I think discovering that on their own time in their own way is really the best course of action. And I, I think that's best for not just your specific question, but for introducing people to Linux in general. Let them take their time. Uh, let them, you know, show them that door. Tell them there's a whole buffet behind there and explore it at their leisure. Okay, the episode 50 AMA rolls on with these two questions from Erno. And I hope I pronounced that right. It could be Erno. But uh, I don't know, sounds nice. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, 
He asked, when did you start using Linux and what distros do you wish were still around? I started using Linux around 2000, first with Caldera Linux from a book and then quickly moved on to Mandrake. I tried about 100 distros over the years and the ones I wish were still around are Foresight Linux and Corora Linux. Uh, Erno, I did not actually switch to Linux until the summer of 2018. So uh, I've heard of Mandrake, but the rest of them just are right over my head. Uh, so that's that's a tough question to answer. But let me float this one to the community, to you guys. What retired Linux distros do you miss? Let me know at linuxforeveryone at pm.me or uh, send, me, send me a message in Discord or in Telegram. Okay, Erno, you also asked this. What distro am I thankful for? and hope that it never goes away. He says he's thankful for Debian and Ubuntu and currently really enjoying Pop! OS. Okay, so it's no secret that I love Pop! OS, so we're going to skip that one. Um, I, can, I can definitely give you an answer that, that might surprise some people. It's elementary OS. I don't use elementary OS as my daily driver, but I am a patron of elementary OS, and I am rooting for elementary OS all the time. And that's because I love everything about their company and their ethics and their distro and their software. Um, it's just it's just not right for me, but I think it's right for so many other people. And I, I, I specifically think that when they get App Center for everyone off the ground, and that's uh, just really quickly to recap what that is, that is a flat pack packaged version of App Center, which allows developers to uh, offer their software for free or for a suggested donation amount. Uh, and so that puts potential revenue in developers' pockets, not just on elementary OS, but on every single Linux distro on the planet. And that's incredible. And I'm really hoping that that will ignite this, uh, you know, it'll ignite and inspire all these independent developers who are making great software and give them more visibility and uh, more funding to make better products. Because when we have more funding and better products, we can more capably compete with commercial software that is stuffed full of money. <laughs> and that's what I'm hoping for. Um, but you know, I love those guys over there. I love Cassidy and, and all those guys who are making such a beautiful Linux distribution and doing so much to um, empower developers. So yeah, that's, that's the one I'm thankful for. All right, the next question comes from Bekim. I hope I pronounced that right. Bekim, B-E-K-I-M. And Bekim asks, do I know any music collaboration platforms, preferably, of course, floss-based ones? Especially during COVID, it has been very difficult to find people to play music with. And I think playing music from other people and recording it for them would really further my musical comprehension. I, I, Bekim, I don't know of any open source music collaboration platforms. I sincerely wish I did. The closest one I think that, that I know of 
is called WikiLoops. In way, way back in episode six of the podcast, I featured a song by Wolfgang Lonian and some of his friends, and they had recorded it as a collaboration with other musicians on a site called WikiLoops. And I'm going to have a link to that uh, in the show notes for this episode. It's it's a small, moderated kind of music social network where you can meet and collaborate with musicians from around the globe and create tracks together, or you can you can use uh, backing tracks that have been kind of donated by the community of musicians there. Last I checked, there are more than 2,500 musicians on the site from 170 countries, and it's existed since 2011. Now, back when I did that song, uh, that song from The Source on Episode 6 from Wolfgang, I did check out the site, and there's some talented people there, so it's probably worth signing up. Um, I, I can't tell you much about the licensing involved. I know that as an artist, you can you can set the kind of license you want, but I, I was digging around, and I couldn't honestly find, uh, you know, is it Creative Commons? Is it, you know, what, what type of license specifically can you grant other people? Uh, so that's worth digging into, but I think it's a site we're checking out. On that note, uh, I just want to say that I'm I'm really hoping to get back to making some music soon. It's been it's been challenging for me to carve out the time, and that's no one's fault but mine. And I'm also hoping that with Pipewire, music production on Linux becomes a much um, much more relaxing thing than it's been. <laughs> anyway, thank you very very much for the question, and thanks for listening. This next really thoughtful question comes from Vladimir, and it's going to require a little bit of setup, so I'm going to be reading his question for a bit. Here we go. The question is, how should we approach big personalities and the community in times of a crisis or controversy? To elaborate, I used to, quote, worship DHH, and that is, of course, uh, David Hansen. And I was so disappointed with the whole dumpster fire at base camp and his unbelievable hubris. And then I would see posts from the Ruby on Rails community pleading with people that DHH is not Rails and that core development team departures are unfortunate but have highlighted the need for better governance. But there is no question that Rails would not be what it is today without DHH. But for many, the association with him was too much. Vladimir continues, my new idol, so to speak, is Jeremy Soller of System76. Thankfully, he does not appear to be in the same cast as DHH, but his influence on System76 and, I would say, on the Linux first hardware is disproportionate, at least in the U.S. What happens if his reputation takes a nosedive? Will that derail System76? I'm saving up for a Lemur Pro and preparing to make the move to Linux, but in the back of my mind, I keep thinking, what will I do if this turns out to be another Basecamp fiasco? So that is the frame for Vladimir's question. Here, here's what I say, dude. Call them out. Do it politely, but call them out. And I'm going to take a real-world example um, using the guy you respect so much, Jeremy Soller. As you know, we had a two-episode interview with him uh, a few weeks back. It was such a great chat. But there was a section in there where uh, he made some comments about uh, Ubuntu and Canonical and their revenue model and how they, some assumptions about how they generated money. And Martin Wimpress called him out on this on Twitter. And Jeremy was incredibly mature about it. 
he not only apologized to Martin publicly, but he also agreed to issue a public statement, which he posted on Twitter, and I included a follow-up on the next episode of the podcast and on one of our YouTube videos. So, you know, I'm not saying that everybody is going to be like Jeremy Soller when it comes to humility and uh, when it comes to admitting, you know, that they made a mistake. Uh, I, I would hope, <laughs> it's my hope, that people could be more like him, myself included, because the way that he handled that situation was so graceful and and so um, it just demonstrated this this uh, this hunger to to learn and to progress that knowledge by learning and by admitting mistakes and by by being willing to uh, well I'm rambling but that impressed me that really really impressed me and so getting back to my my basic answer is is really call them out on it. Do it publicly. Do it politely, though. Other than that, um, you always have to seek a different opinion. If something rubs you the wrong way, maybe seek another another thought leader in that space and, uh, and get their take on it as well. Thanks for the question, Vladimir. Good one. Will asked me 10 questions, and I'm not going to answer them all, but they were so good that I'm going to try and answer as many as possible. So here we go. Question number one. Do you think Apple's newfound interest in privacy is for the benefit of the buyers or just another marketing scheme? Well, through my eyes, as someone with a marketing background, it's absolutely both. It's both. Is this going to get people to switch, some people, to switch from Android to iOS? Yeah, definitely. Will going after massive players in that space like uh, like Facebook result in cycles and cycles of big, bold headlines and coverage? Yeah, it will. Also, yes. Um, it, one of the most important things about marketing is being persistently present. It's being constantly reminding people that you exist and that you are doing something for them. You're creating technology that makes their life better. Now, I'm not saying that that's true, but I'm saying that's the message that you want to be conveying 24-7. And Apple has been very, very savvy with their approach to privacy and putting their users first. And I think that, I hope at least, that this will have some kind of ripple effect and that it will raise awareness about privacy. You know, you guys um, listen to my conversation with Brian Fox about how uh, we're, we're trading convenience for privacy and just acknowledging that our privacy is being invaded is is a bit of a hurdle for for the general public. And so I, I really think that Apple doing this, whether it's a marketing scheme or not, is going to help the overall conversation about privacy. Question number two, where do you see the Linux hardware market five to 10 years from now? Do you think it could ever become as prevalent as Windows and OS X hardware? Well, I have a weird view on this. In 10 years, I don't think there will be a dedicated Linux hardware market. Hear me out. It won't be, it won't be a dedicated Linux hardware market that needs to be measured against Windows PCs and Macs. That's because I, I really believe 99% of the hardware that gets released is 
going to be also considered Linux hardware, Linux compatible hardware. You know what I mean? Especially when you've got key hardware vendors like Intel, AMD, uh, Lenovo, Dell, contributing all of their work and their driver modifications upstream or to the kernel. We're not having as many of those same conversations, are we? Where you know someone buys a desktop or buys a laptop and uh, they go to install Linux and there's all kinds of trouble. Now, whether that's because the documentation is better and people are just simply avoiding those, those certain bad apples that, uh, that are using very locked down like Wi-Fi cards and such, and they're just not buying those products, or that you know the kernel is supporting more and more hardware, I, I don't know which is which. Maybe it's a case of both. But yeah, five to 10 years from now, um, I think that we're going to see more Linux adoption, not... Not crazy, you know, double digits, but I do think that the majority of hardware, almost all the hardware that gets released, you will be able to very easily slap Linux on it. And I also hope that that holds true for the uh, the Apple Silicon hardware as well. Question number three. What TV shows did you binge over quarantine? Dude, probably way too many. Uh, but off the top of my head, Silicon Valley I had watched seasons one and two years ago, and I finally binged it all the way through in like a week. Uh, Legion, excellent, excellent show. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Cobra Kai, and Legends of Tomorrow. Question four. Is it it four? (laughs) Maybe it's four or five. Um, Did you have any pre-existing notions of what Linux was before you started learning about it? And if so, what were they? Yeah, I was that guy. That's why it took me so long, Will. Um, You know, I was a believer in all those myths that now I am trying to debunk. You know, myths like you have to use the command line. Myths like installing Linux is hard. Myths like uh, you have to... You have to compile uh, the kernel, recompile the kernel for every new scenario you have, and you have to search endlessly for the right driver and, you know, go to the command line to install the driver and get that working. All of that stuff, man, all of it. And now I'm in this position where where hopefully I can uh, dispel those myths, debunk those myths, be a Linux myth buster <laughs> for all those people who are thinking about trying it but are afraid for those same reasons. A lot of people think that it's still 2008. And whether that's because Linux marketing sucks or, you know, whatever, it, the, the reason doesn't matter, but people still do think that Linux is this archaic operating system that's only used by, you know, neckbeards and and geeks and people running servers. And that's not remotely true. Linux is for everyone, right? Question number five, I think. (laughs) I'll stop counting. Okay, here's next. Here's here's Will's next question. Would you still use Linux if Windows or Mac OS were privacy respecting and at least partially open source? Yes, I would. I would still use Linux. And here's why. I really appreciate the 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 staggering and sometimes overwhelming choice that we have with desktop Linux distributions. And I love the level of customization. I absolutely adore the fact that that my Pop OS installation now across my desktop and both laptops is 
Dracula theme all the time, baby, 24-7. I love that look. I love the Dracula theme. I have it applied everywhere possible. And then I have it easily cloned and and thrown onto any system that I want to put it on. You know, I still think that's one of the best things about Linux is that it makes your PC, which stands for what? Personal computer. It makes it personal again. We live in a world where Microsoft and Apple they're going to want direct control over how their operating systems look, what the basic user experience is going to be out of the box. And I don't really ever see that changing. So yeah, I would, I would definitely stick to Linux. And the final question I'm going to answer from you, Will, I did save uh, one or two for the next AMA. I'm not sure when that'll happen. Maybe episode 100. Uh, okay, your next question. How does using a different OS from most people help and or hurt your productivity and workflow on an average day. Uh, th- maybe this isn't going to be a complete answer for you, Will, but it doesn't really hurt me at all, though I'm probably an outlier. You know, I'm not a developer. I'm not a graphic artist. Uh, the production tools that I depend on, like Audacity for recording this show, they're available across Linux, Mac OS, and Windows. For video editing, I I honestly do think that Apple's Final Cut Pro is unmatched. I think that is the best software that you can use. But I'm also happy using Lightworks, which is also available on all three platforms. And lately, Caden Live has really, really impressed me. But again, I'm not I'm not collaborating on things with people across different platforms. And I suppose if I was. I'd expect that they were primarily using Linux like I am, you know? By the way, I do want to give a a really serious uh, nod of approval, an enthusiastic nod of approval to Caden Live's developers. Because for a little while last year, I was actually using Final Cut Pro on my Mac to edit, I think I did three or four Linux for Everyone videos with with Apple software. Because you know what? I like it. It's, It's intuitive. It's fast. And it's very, very easy to get through your work. But uh, Caden Life has really, really stepped it up lately. And so I am now investing my time into relearning that and, and kind of learning as many of the effects and tricks and shortcuts as I can. Will, thank you for that handful of great questions. Marty is an Australian living in Singapore. And here is what Marty asked. As a writer and a Linux user, which writing software do you use? Do you use a Markdown editor? If so, which one and why? This is going to be a boring answer, Marty. Uh, I do most of my writing in Standard Notes, actually. Uh, Ever since Alan Pope showed me Standard Notes like two and a half years ago, I use it for so many things. I can even use it to to host and write a blog if I want to. Uh, I, I bought the paid version last year, and so I've got extensions, and of course I've got the Dracula theme running on it, whether that's the local app or the web app. I feel like ever since I've been using computers to write things, um, I have used a WYSIWYG editor, a what-you-see-is-what-you-get editor in, in some form. I cut my teeth with those old-school word processors and then started using WordPress, I think, in 2003 or 2004, and the WYSIWYG editor just always felt natural. I've... I've tried to slowly embrace Markdown, and I appreciate Markdown, but until I know it like the back of my hand, it's sort of 
interrupts the writing and the creative flow that I have. When I'm, I'm using too much of that creative power to think, oh, how do I format this? And I don't want to do that. Thanks for the question, Marty. All right, gang, we are getting down to the last few questions, and I want to thank you for being here, and uh, man, I've gotten really fired up with some of these answers. Thankfully, they haven't been quite as verbose as I thought they might be, so I don't think there's a need for a three-hour episode, Uh, but anyway, I hope you have enjoyed this as much as I've enjoyed answering them, and really, as much as I've enjoyed this crazy Linux for Everyone ride that I've had with you guys for the last couple years. All right, it's time for a few questions from Chema. I hope I pronounced that right. All right, I'm excited about this one because I get to talk about coffee a little bit. (laughs) Chema asked, what kind of coffee beans do you prefer? Origin, type, characteristics, roast, level, etc. And also, which kind of brewing method do you enjoy the most? So I have to say, my favorite region is going to be, uh, well, let's call it African, but but specifically Kenyan beans. Any beans from Kenya are traditionally, they just have this very crisp, almost citrus quality to them. Uh, In fact, the citrus element really pops out if you pair it with something like a lemon bar or some kind of orangey or lemony or grapefruity food. Uh, So my favorite Brewing method, it used to be a French press until I discovered the air press like seven or eight years ago. The rest was history. I just, I love the AeroPress because you still get that full-bodied flavor without the muddiness, and it's a super, super easy cleanup. So yeah, um, anytime you guys want to talk about coffee, (laughs) let's do it. Chema also asks this, which were the most shocking or interesting things for you about the European or Croatian way of life compared to the USA? They don't have to be big things, maybe those small things that made you think, wow, that's so nice, aha, interesting, or something you thought that's just nice to have, or even things that you miss from your previous life in the States. I had to think about this one a little bit. And, you know, there's probably, if I sat down for a few days to think about this, it could probably comprise an entire episode. Uh, but, But the first thing that immediately jumped out at me about Croatia is everyone greets each other inside of a building. Not on the sidewalk, but if you're in a building, someone is going to greet you. Dobrdan, when you pass someone in a stairwell or when you walk into an occupied elevator. And that means uh, basically good day or good afternoon. Uh, you might also hear Dobro uh, Jutro, good morning. Vecher, which is evening. Um, but it's always, it's an automatic response. It's sort of a common courtesy. You you don't really see it accompanied with a smile, though. In In fact... Croatians, from what I've gathered, Croatians tend to dislike that aspect about Americans. You know, all the the fake smiling and being overly friendly with total strangers. Speaking of food, right? There's no distinction between normal and organic food here because it's pretty much all organic. You don't have to pay extra. (laughs) It's all good. As far as what I miss... uh, Two things, really. Two things that I miss from the States. The first one, it may sound petty, but 
After three years, I still really miss Amazon's next day delivery. In fact, I miss Amazon pricing in general. Even before this silicon shortage and the scalping and the crypto mining boom, uh, electronics were already pretty expensive here in Croatia, and now they're prohibitively expensive. I hope that changes soon. And the second thing I miss is In-N-Out Burger. In-N-Out! There's... There's plenty of incredible food here, but there's nothing I have found that resembles In-N-Out. You know, that that old school menu, the very simple menu, the freshness of it, the, you know, it's, I don't know, the taste of it, uh, the look of it. There's just nothing here that I've, that I found that resembles that at all. And our last episode 50 AMA question, we did it. We reached the end. Chema asked what kind of games I prefer, open world or linear, multiplayer or single player. All right, here we go. After so many years of wanting to love them, I have pretty much given up on open world games. And they're the ones I really like the most, <laughs> but they're such time sinks. You know, Far Cry, Skyrim, uh, GTA, these are... These are distraction magnets. I don't know if I'm ADD, but I am constantly getting sidetracked. And I've, I've, I've literally never finished any of these open world games, despite spending... Oh, Dragon Age Origins is another one. Despite spending 50, 100 hours on each one, I just... I can't get through them. Uh, with that being said, I do mostly prefer the single-player experience. Um, Story-driven experiences. It's telling me a meaningful story. It's it's engaging my emotions. Back when I was younger, I used to I used to pretty much gravitate towards mostly multiplayer, you know, the halos and stuff like that. But uh but now I just I I don't I don't like to spend the energy as much. <laughs> there's, you know, there's one or two multiplayer titles that I will play. Uh but but for the most part, I just I like to game when I want to game. And you know, for the last four years, I've been kind of on a weird time zone. And uh, I don't have a lot of people to play with locally. And so, yeah, I I tend to lean on those single player and preferably shorter um, narrative driven, you know, so 20 or 30 hours tops. I don't want to spend 80 hours on on a video game experience anymore, unless it is a multiplayer one where you know, I'm just playing it for the fun of that that feedback loop, that that action, that gunplay, whatever. So I think that's it, you guys. That is episode 50. That is our second AMA in the bag. And uh, thank you for participating in this. And anytime you guys want to ask me a question, go ahead and do it. Just shoot me an email, linuxforeveryone at pm.me. And uh, if you are a subscriber to the Library Odyssey or YouTube channels, I'm going to take a few of your questions and make uh, standalone videos about them because I feel like a few of them are just kind of begging for a visual aid. So uh, hopefully you can look forward to that over the next several weeks. And before I go, a big, big heartfelt thank you to Linux for Everyone patrons and super fans. You guys... um, You guys support the show with not just your enthusiasm, but with your wallet. And I appreciate you for that. Thank you. And of course, to Tuxedo Computers, who makes all of this content possible now, who has allowed this to be 
basically my day job. So thank you to Tuxedo Computers and everyone over there. I'm slowly getting to know everybody. In fact, I want to give a, a big shout out to Can and Christoph. You guys know who you are. Keep talking to me. It's been fun. All right, gang, I'm going to get out of your hair and uh, I'll see you soon for episode 51. Until then, you guys take care and take care of each other. <laughs>